Welcome, I'm David Reimer, CEO of American Co., as well as the executive editor of the journal People and Strategy. Published by Sherm's Executive Network, People and Strategy is a quarterly that delivers the most current theory, research, and practice in strategic human resource management. It focuses on best practices that help executives consistently improve HR performance and drive organizational development and effectiveness. I'm excited to sit down today with Lisa Shallot, the founder of Extraordinary Women on Boards, a retired Goldman Sachs partner and an experienced director herself. Lisa wrote an article for this summer 2020 issue of People and Strategy about the trust needed in business today, particularly in the boardroom. Lisa and I will explore this need for trust, especially in today's environment, and how that affects leaders at all levels. Thank you for being here, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me, David, and thank you for the work you do and the insights you bring to us all. Oh, absolutely. It's a pleasure. And we've got a meaty subject here, but before we dive in, I want to pause on this notion of extraordinary women on boards. And can you just tell us a little bit about that? Where did, how did it come into being? Sure. I, you know, I think the thing that's most interesting about extraordinary women on boards is that it all happened organically. It wasn't something that I set out to do. So by definition, Extraordinary Women on Boards is a community of now over 180 women on corporate boards and really such phenomenal accomplished women representing over 300 public and private boards across a wide range of industries and sectors. The group um, focuses on advancing board excellence, modernizing governance, and increasing diversity on boards. And it convenes regularly to learn together mine our collective wisdom, which you know, in a group like this is massive, and discuss best practices. This group really just wants to be the best board directors we can be. And so the origin of the group is that once I retired from Goldman Sachs and was meeting more people in their quote, next chapter phase, I naturally met a number of women who were on corporate boards. And it really struck me that they were so excited to meet another woman on a corporate board. It turns out that on the boards they were on, they were the only woman director. So I had this same conversation 15 times, and then I realized I could definitely do something to bring these women together. So I found a great speaker on a relevant topic for boards. I had him, it happened to be a guy, agree to buy lunch in a private room, and I filled the table with these 15 women. And it was an incredible discussion. And after this event, I got feedback from every woman there to do it again. And so I have been. So over the past four years, every four to five weeks, I would identify a timely and relevant topic for the group, find an excellent speaker, find a host. Um, so law firms like Simpson Thatcher were fantastic collaborators, for example, um, and have the goal of everyone leaving the room even smarter with actionable insights and smart questions to bring back to their boards. And it became this remarkable, safe, trusted space where everyone felt comfortable knew there was a room full of their peers and there was tremendous engagement. And people just started to refer in to me amazing women board directors they knew. And so it's grown so much and it's continuing to grow. And, you know, originally it was based around physically getting together. So it was limited to uh, the tri-state area. I'm based in New York. And now I've had the opportunity to reimagine it virtually at a time when the crisis has put such great demands on board directors. So I've shifted to Zoom sessions. Soon I'll launch an online community platform to enable the networking and sharing of information that, that can't really happen in person right now. And because there's no longer the constraint of meeting in person, members have joined from all over the country and a few from around the world. So 
this has been such a great experience and really very fulfilling for me to be a part of. That's fantastic. And Lisa, one of the things that I like about the perspective you bring to this conversation and to your article is that that network, right? You you have thoughtful opinions yourself and you are constantly mining that that group of relationships to to hear and see what others are are, are seeing as well. And so, I, you know, it, it brings a different kind of pattern recognition than than if you were just dropping in and out of one or two board meetings yourself. So, Completely. It's exciting. So, this year has been a series of crises. We've had COVID-19. We are in an election year. The uncertainty around the sort of the economic outlook. And then over the last few weeks, you know, systemic racism hitting a, a boiling over point feels like. In all of that, uh, what patterns or changes are you seeing emerge within boardroom discussions? Sure. That, that's a great question. You, you know, when you manage through one crisis, you somehow think you're prepared for your next crisis. And I managed Goldman Sachs brand during the financial crisis, but this is completely different. And so, you know, in terms of the conversations that I have with other members of Extraordinary Women on boards and, and just the, the, the flow that, that I'm in the middle of, I would say, you know, there are three things. First is that everyone has had to adjust to an unprecedented volume and intensity of everything, a relentless pace of everything. Board meetings have been more frequent with much greater urgency of topics and a huge number of decisions to be made on short time frames about scenarios and issues that weren't even on the radar screen before. And there's a tremendous need to gather, qualify, and evaluate information and data like never before. So I, I just I just want to put a pin in that. The experience has been incredibly intense. And it's been an adjustment for everyone, and it's really required a lot of stamina and steep learning curves going at it day after day. You know, normally boards meet once a quarter, maybe some committee meetings in between, but, you know, this is, this is on a whole new level. Um, the second thing is, uh, you know, seeing new forms of risk or unanticipated things happen. And having to throw out whatever plans were so carefully made in the before pandemic and really rethink business models completely in some cases. You know, boards are having to figure out how to have these conversations, how to imagine or reimagine new possibilities. And frankly, these are discussions that really should happen, but often don't without pressure. Well, now we have pressure. And the third thing I'd say is that I'm seeing and hearing about an even greater focus on these uh, ESG or environmental social governance issues, especially the S around social and new discussions around purpose. And these are largely being driven by pressure from stakeholders and employees have become really activist stakeholders. And so understanding stakeholders have, has been um, very critical for boards. So you know, to me, as I, as I try to look at this collectively, it's shown me that the role of boards has never been more important. And amidst this pace, board directors really can bring perspective and judgment and experience and be attuned to blind spots that, you know, often amidst crises, uh, when the management teams don't, you know, have time and have so many things to deal with, this can be really helpful. And, you know, it's, it's especially important when the topics include incredibly sensitive ones around people, around health and safety, 
around their families, around fear, around work conditions, around work from home and layoffs, and now, to your point, an increased focus on race. So I would say all of those things are, are what I'm observing, and it's, it's, it's fascinating. Um, it's a little scary, uh, but it's, it's a tremendous opportunity if done well. That, that intersection of, of fascinating and scary, I think, is, is, is an important one. I mean, you mentioned a moment ago how, how you know, the role of the board has never been more important, which is certainly true. And some of these conversations feel fundamentally new, or at least the, the approach to them, the approach required today is new. And, and I think that's an, it's one of the patterns I'm seeing also, I think, is boards are not just revisiting the subjects or visiting the subjects for the first time, but they're trying to think about how do we have this conversation in a way that creates a different outcome. You know, in your article, you, you sort of hone in on five, you call them trust touch points that have been made starkly clear through the early stages of the pandemic. And, and I think are continue to be made clear as we deal with the next stage of the pandemic and, and other issues. Can you just briefly describe those touch points and how they're showing up? Sure. So, you know, I try to make uh, a habit of even even at the craziest of times, kind of taking a pause and trying to see the big picture. And it really requires a lot of discipline these days to do that. But as I spoke to a lot of the board directors and extraordinary women on boards, and also, you know, observed my own experience on my boards, I started to think about where these conversations and issues and patterns were coming together. And suddenly I had a moment of clarity and really saw them all tied to trust. And especially in this crisis, which has really emphasized the interconnectivity of people, behavior, personal, professional, global, so many interdependencies, you know, trust is the thing that holds them all together. And so board directors are always focusing on anticipating, identifying, and mitigating risk. And, you know, trust has, to me, become a new lens for identifying risk because the risk comes when the trust does not exist. So it's really become critical for boards to focus on trust across key relationships because there's been too much assumed trust and not enough questioning of trust. Our customers love us. Our suppliers love us. The crisis has made us all see where trusted relationships did not come through or where they came through and where we didn't have the trust we assumed or maybe we did and were able to verify it. So I saw these as five sets of relationships that I called trust touch points. And you know, briefly, the relationships are between the board and management, between the leader and the employees of the company, between the leader and the organization as a whole between the company and its customers, and between the company and its ecosystem of suppliers and partners. And I would say, you know, probably the ones that get the least focus or are less obvious are between the company and its ecosystem of suppliers and partners, and between the leader and the organization. But we can dive into any ones you'd like. Sure. And I I love this, that, that, notion of the relationship between trust and risk and the board's fiduciary responsibility of trying to understand risk uh, for an organization. And the, the, the fact that you boil it down to these points, I mean, you, you, I think you're bringing up a recurring question that I've seen boards struggle with, which is how do we know 
how the employees feel about about leadership. You know, we see the engagement scores, but but what does that actually look and feel like on a day-to-day basis? And your point about the relationship to the ecosystem, tying back to ESG a, a, a moment ago as well, there are some challenges to trying to get a clear line of sight from the boardroom where you're not there every day. How, how do you, you know, how are you thinking about or how are the, 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 the members of your group, people in your network thinking about, SIG number one, you know, the leader's relationship with the employees, how are they thinking about getting a clear line of sight? You know, I think that one is really the one that's on center stage because there is, well, as you say, right? Boards struggle with how to measure really soft things. How do you measure culture? How do you think about compassion? really soft skills. And so right now, given the sensitive things that companies are needing to deal with and really needing to think through, you know, if you're if you're a board, right, you can see how the leader handles these situations, both in their discussions with the board, but also how they go out and have these discussions with employees. And you can see, you can observe how employees react. So it's a really interesting laboratory for seeing these things in action. And, you know, as a, as a board, you can ask, what are the signs that we're seeing that our leader has invested in culture and trust? So is management facing this crisis from a foundation of employee trust, or are they starting from a deficit? You know, when you look at the way the leader talks with employees or thinks about the issues, are they doing it with sensitivity or are they just either panicking because they've never had to deal with it before or are they too stressed out to be compassionate or, you know, are they, are they, you know, just trying to check a box? And so these are things now that you can see and the degree to which the leader, it puts thought into their communication is, is a really critical element. And these you know, incidents um, are happening in ways that are much more public than ever also, because, you know, from a a stakeholder perspective, there are lots of folks out there who are watching how um, CEOs behave. And so when you look at, you know, the leader's relationship with employees, you really want to understand whether there's trust. And two examples of leaders who are being held up as just incredible role models are Danny Meyer, uh, the restaurateur, mm-hmm. who, you know, talk about industries that have really been dramatically affected by COVID-19, the restaurant industry for sure. And what he described was that he had to go from being an organization that tried to distinguish itself on how excellent they were as employers to also being what he calls excellent unemployers. And how do you still keep an organization that you consider a family feeling like a family when you have to either lay off or furlough so many people? And the way he approached it was to really be thoughtful with empathy and compassion about people now being put in that position of, of maybe not having a job, having to look for a job in an environment like this through no fault of their own. And he made sure that there was a fund to provide grants to set up support services 
Um, he set up a job board, online uh, classes, remote resume coaching, and various remote coaching. That is incredibly compassionate. So he was a trusted leader to begin with, but as you can see from his actions, culture and compassion are part of their values. And the other one that um, I'll just mention, uh, because there is a letter that you can read that's online, um, was Brian Chesky, the founder of Airbnb, who also was similarly tremendously compassionate about having to let go a number of his people, people who built the company with him, and was so thoughtful about, okay, how do we make sure they still maintain their health benefits? And how do we help them uh, find jobs and all sorts of things that really, I guess, sound like above and beyond, but are exactly what that trust is supposed to be. Yeah, it's interesting that you point out the, the degree to which some of that is visible today. One of the things that we've been hearing from in our interviews with, with both directors, but also with CHROs, is that there are aspects of the way leaders, and I'm not just talking about CEOs, I'm talking about senior leaders in general, either have or have not shown up over the last four or five months. It's changing succession plans in the yes. organization. and. You know, that's a pretty concrete, and, and if you're an executive, that's a pretty attention-getting <laughs> signal. But, but this notion that there are people who seem to have found their voices, and there are people that we bet heavily upon who lost their voices uh, in this process. They seem to fade as leaders under, under the pressure of taking care of their people in crisis. And it, it, is, a, it is an interesting just window, I think, that, that boards and the general public is getting right now. Yes, well, I'll, I'll I'll add to that. I mean, many of the board directors that I speak with say that they've taken the time to reach out to the CEO and have one-on-one -on -one conversations, mm -hmm. and really just try to be a coach more than ever before. Right. Um, hey, I've been through a situation like this, or how are you thinking about this? And and really just try to be a sounding board, uh, or or as I like to put it, a sanity buddy, <laughs> um, because because being a leader in this environment especially when you're dealing with your own family and, and your own personal life and, and, and whatever might be going on with that. Someone might be ill, you know, you know, you never know. It's lonely. I mean, leadership is lonely to begin with, but this is a whole new level of responsibility um, amidst uncertainty that I think is, uh, is you know, as we, as we mentioned before, the word scary. Um, and, you know, to your point, I also think that boards are getting a lot of information as to, you know, what a leader should be. And I think that the assessments are likely to now really embrace some of the previously uh, called soft spots that in a crisis like this have proven to be, you know, really differentiating and, and important and, and inspiring and, and, and trust building. Right, right. So let's double click on that other area that you mentioned as being sort of a, 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 an emerging trust touch point that, that I, I, it's not emerging, I guess the, its importance has emerged uh, with greater clarity than ever. And that is the relationship with the company, with its ecosystem. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. You know, I think this one um, was something that probably kind of was relegated to, you know, someone responsible for operations, but in this crisis, which tested so many parts of the equation, this is probably where lack of trust was revealed the most starkly. So, you know, I would say when you're in an urgent liquidity situation and need cash, are your partners there for you? You know, if if today 
cash tomorrow, no cash. And you're, you're reaching out to your relationships that you never thought you would have to tap into this way. Are there loopholes and agreements that suddenly are highlighted as reasons they're not there for you? And so I know a number of companies that were faced with those situations where they thought they had trusted relationships and they didn't. When your supply chain depends on people doing what they promised and getting things done, are they doing what they promised? Um, sometimes yes, sometimes no, but the difference might be if, if a supply of something doesn't show up where it's supposed to, and there may be any number of reasons for it, but if it surprises you, and then as a result, you can't do your business, well, what does that say? So, you know, the, the questions that it seemed to me are important as a board director to, to ask, ideally before you need them, but certainly reflecting on some of the observations here about this trust touch, trust touch point, sorry, are, you know, what is the company's reputation with its suppliers and partners? Are there any issues? You know, who's responsible for these relationships and who's monitoring it? Because not asking that question just assumes that the company's reputation is fine. It may not be. You know, has the company treated its suppliers and partners well? Or for example, is it the type of company that stretches payments and strings suppliers along and really makes it difficult for suppliers to feel like they're actually part of an ecosystem? You know, so do suppliers deliver on their commitments? If not, what happens? Are there strong ties? Are there weak ties? Are there neglected ties? And, you know, when you need a partner in a crisis, are they showing up? Um, so what kind of investment is there in these relationships to build trust? And we really need to be asking these questions, ideally before a crisis, but certainly now, knowing what we know, uh, we should leverage a crisis to learn. And I, I just don't feel that those questions have typically been, been asked because everything kind of worked. And if there was a, a supply chain problem, it, it was dealt with by the people who deal with supply chain. Now, these issues are business critical and could be the difference between success or failure. So they rise to the level of the boardroom in a new way. And, you know, all of this information is needed. That trust is so important. Yeah. What I love about that insight, I think, Lisa, is that it's, it's you know, there's, it's, it's, two part, right? And one part is just right now looking at how are your suppliers and your partners and people in your ecosystem responding to you? Because that is a, if you weren't taking the temperature before, you are getting a real-time temperature reading um, of, of, of that relationship. But, but you're also laying out a framework uh, of questions to be asked in good times. Yes. Um, about about, the, about the, the nature of relationship that I think is, is helpful and, and changes. Um, the cha it changes, I think, the some of the level of inquiry. Yes. And and so let me ask about that because you know one of the things about about boards drilling deeper into potential risk areas and addressing concerns of you know an increasingly wide range of stakeholders is that asking those kinds of questions, if you're management, can feel like fundamental distrust. Don't you trust us that we're taking good care of our people? Can, can you talk about about how? risk and trust converge in a healthy way in the boardroom? Sure. You know, I, I think that boards can help the most by asking smart questions. That's their job. And by trying to anticipate and spot risks, that's their job, and ensure that there's accountability. And it, it is 
very interesting to see how this all plays out now. And so I see trust as a really effective lens through which to identify risk, as I said. It can be a great leading indicator, but not thinking about things in terms of trust is a risk. Um, so hopefully board members also bring deep expertise in certain areas. But you know, look at the example of supply chains, probably new to most board directors. So board directors have to think about what information do they need? Um, they have to think about the leaders of these areas that they need to know. I'm sure boards are meeting the heads of operations and supply chains now, whereas they might not have hit the agenda or the boardroom before. And, you know, everyone is being sensitive to the need to get data and make decisions. But look, that's different from actually managing the supply chain. And boards always have to be very careful about, you know, not overstepping. But, you know, there are a whole new set of risks to think about. So, you know, these trust questions are really important. There is an incredible um, Columbia Business School professor named Rita McGrath, who wrote a, a book that's more relevant than ever called uh, Seeing Around Corners and How to Spot Inflection Points, one of my favorite books, which shows you how nerdy I am. And um, it, it relates to what are the dependencies in our supply chain? And an example that she cites in, in a conversation uh, that she had with extraordinary women on boards in a session that we did virtually was the example of a company that needed to go deeper and deeper and deeper, ultimately 40 layers deep in order to answer the question as to where they had dependencies and bottlenecks in their supply chain. They had to isolate and understand a dependency that they hadn't realized was so critical. And so, you know, these are all really interesting issues. A board doesn't want to overstep. And at the same time, if you don't investigate things from the perspective of trust, you're not doing a good job of identifying risk. Right. I think one of the other um, contributors in, in this issue is, is uh, Mike Cordano, the president of Western Digital. And, you know, he calls out the notion that supply chains have been optimized for for cost saving not yes. for not for resilience yes and in fact incentive structures are built that way it's incentivized and the challenge with resilience is that it's expensive and somebody has to bear that cost and i think it's another area just 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 in the specifics is 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 as boards look at these different areas of potential risk thinking about the unintended consequences of the way incentive schemes are structured. Yes. That, that it's all well-intended. No one's trying to create vulnerability, but have we created vulnerability in, in what we've incentivized and what we've chosen to not incent? Right. And, and how well do, do the incentives align with the trust that is important in all of these relationships? I yeah. think these are, are, are really important questions to revisit. And even if you discover that everything checks off, um, that's a, a very comforting validation. But yep. odds are that that won't be the case. Yeah, agreed. So let me shift this slightly as you talk about as you talk about um, these aspects of trust. You know, one of the realities, perhaps underappreciated by people who aren't sitting in the boardroom, is the boards themselves are a kind of team. Yes. Now they're a team that, that is, again, they're not together every day. They're, they, they, they also belong to other teams, right? There's all kinds of intersectionality, but for boards to be effective, 
they have to at some level play as a team. Can you just talk a bit about what you've seen in terms of team dynamics and, and you know, diversity of thought, et cetera, playing in the boardroom? Sure. Um, and, you know, it's so interesting because one of the things that I hear most is that many boards are just dysfunctional. And so people play different roles or have different tenure or, or dominate or, you know, it's, it is, uh, you know, depending on how your, your, your family Thanksgiving dinner goes, some say it's, it's, it's reminiscent of that. <laughs> and, hmm. and, and some say that, uh, you know, it operates beautifully, but I think this crisis has really made boards aware of their own need to operate as a team because there's no time not to. And, you know, back to trust, board directors trust each other. And so, you know, this is yet another holding up the mirror opportunity to say, how are we performing together as a board? You know, every board should be asking itself this regularly, but certainly now. And, you know, what have we learned about our strengths and weaknesses as board directors, especially under stress? And so, you know, one really interesting conversation I had with Davia Temin, who is the, the CEO of Temin and Company and a crisis strategist, was describing to me how she does these crisis war games uh, where directors and managements role play a crisis. And she said one of the biggest learnings from those exercises is you get to see how in a crisis scenario, different people react. And sometimes it's about reaction speed. So who's really good at thinking fast in a crisis? Who does better if they have more time to think? Who's really good at giving advice on communications? Who might be deep on supply chain, for example? This is really important data to get, and now we're getting it. So it is a real-time board assessment, and it's really important to put it to use. So you know, this is the time to be noticing. Are there skills in the boardroom that we lack? You know, do we have enough perspectives represented, enough diversity of all kinds? Are we respectful of each other? And are we communicating well? Can everyone ask questions or are conversations dominated by a few and people feel shut out? You know, in a crisis, boards need to get along. And if they're not, then they really have to get to the why not. And, you know, we are far from out of this crisis, but, you know, going through a crisis, any team should come out stronger and boards should come out stronger. But, you know, I think one of the things that's going to come out of this crisis is hopefully an honesty about whether board refreshment is needed. Um, there's a lot of talk about how, you know, you get on a board and some people stay on a board for, for decades. Is that smart? Is that serving the company well? So I think this refreshment conversation will absolutely come to the forefront, either to fill in skills and perspectives or to replace people who might no longer be what the board needs or to address other issues like this discussion on race, where it's really shining a light on uh, the deficiencies there. And it's interesting as I'm listening to you, you know, those questions about what are the skills that we lack? How diverse is our set of perspectives? Are we able to have respectful conversations that recognize our differences? Those are questions you would ask of any regular team. Mm -hmm. It's just that I think historically, not all boards and maybe not most boards have thought of themselves in that way. So it is, it is an interesting potential inflection point uh, that we're in right now. 
One of the things you've you've mentioned a few times, and it, it, it certainly resonates, I think, is is the notion that some of the things that that boards struggle with assessing accurately are, are the softer characteristics. You know what what it, what is what is the culture of the company? What's the what's sort of the CEO's EQ with his or her employee base? You know some of that is the bailiwick of HR. And it's an interesting intersection. How does HR make culture concrete and make some of these aspects concrete? And and how you know and how does the board engage in conversations about soft topics? Do you, do you have a thought or two about what HR can do to improve the director experience, the clarity of insight as they steward the organization? Yeah. Look, I think this is another example of the role of trust. And you know, I'm I'm sorry to say, but what I hear most is that typically the board does not feel they can trust the CHRO. Um, They feel that the CHRO is only speaking what the CEO wants them to say, or is not willing, or perhaps not able to share the real story of what's actually going on. Maybe the perception is that that uh, HR person isn't asking the tough questions that the board wants asked, or is instead trying to make the company look as good as it can. Um, very, you know, responsible for for cosmetics and aesthetics um, instead of analytics. And so I think there's a ton of opportunity for the board HR relationship to have greater trust. I mean, for all the reasons that we just discussed, that relationship is critically important, especially now. And look, sometimes it's a structural issue. You know, how is the company and the CEO positioning and respecting the HR role? You know, does the CHRO have a seat at the table, so to speak? Do they present to the board? Do they attend board meetings? Do they have an opportunity to develop their own relationship with the board and speak with the board? You know, sometimes they're blocked from doing so. And frankly, that is a real red flag for the board and something that the board should be asking about. I think that if, if the CHRO is not on the agenda, something is wrong. You know, maybe the question that sometimes lingers in the air is, is this CHRO thoughtful? Are they a thought leader or or just are they weak? You know, do they have the data to do their jobs? Do they know the data when they come and have their meetings? Are they prepared and thoughtful? Are they in the flow of how people in the organization really feel, which is so important right now? And and how are they doing this? Is Are they doing it in a sensible, thoughtful way? So you know, I think this crisis is really shining a light on so many people issues like never before, as we've discussed. And and often these issues have been regulated to the nice to haves, the check the box, the soft skills. But, you know, there's never been a more important time to have a really thoughtful and empowered CHRO. So I would say to the CHROs out there, and I'm I'm sure that uh, many of your listeners are in that role. If you don't have a relationship with the board, you need to make that happen. And you know what? You should be scratching your head if the board isn't asking to spend more time with you. And I think the opportunities are to, in that role, from that unique vantage point, really identify the issues and the risks in this new environment. And like the board, start to think, what are the key questions to be asking now? What data do we have versus what we need? What are we doing well? And how do we know that? What are we lagging in and why? And what are actionable steps to fix it? Bring these insights forward. Help the board. 
you know, don't try to mask issues or present things in only a good light. And if you're under pressure in that way, then you have to have a confidential conversation. But now is the time to dig in and it will be so valuable and so appreciated. That's great. That's compelling. And I think it's, it's you know, your last point there, for some reason, you're being blocked from sharing with the board or getting to know the board or your, 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 your message is being micromanaged uh, to the board. The notion that this is the time to change that conversation is really powerful. So let's talk, you know, you, you, this has been great. Uh, I think the range of perspectives and, and insights you bring. Let's go back to where we started with extraordinary women on boards for a moment. You know, you're a community of, of, of women corporate board directors focused on advancing excellence, governance, diversity. And we're in a time of, of significant sort of social upheaval and, and, and coming to confronting some of the worst tendencies in our system in terms of racism, in terms of, of you know, we've been dealing with Me Too. In the middle of all that, are we making progress in equity on boards? And, and, and if so, or if not, you know, how do you see the current sort of crises uh, affecting this concept of equity? Sure. Uh, no one would say that there's enough diversity on boards. No one. And it really feels inch by inch. So progress, yes, but inch by inch. And it's often driven by a source of pressure, like a focus on ESG or activists who themselves are pressured by their investors or investors or the proxy community or employees. That's fine. I welcome the pressure if it drives the right change. It's not enough to have one woman on a board, for example, and feel you are done with diversity. Um, so I think public companies have been doing better, but are still so far from done. It usually feels like the minimum is done. Private companies really haven't done much at all. And I think the private equity community is starting to feel a lot of pressure on this. So, you know, I was really impressed when Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon pledged that, uh, and I think he did this at Davos, pledged that effective July 1st, which is coming up, um, Goldman Sachs will only underwrite IPOs in the US and Europe of private companies that have at least one diverse board member. And then starting in 2021, they'll raise the target to two diverse candidates for each IPO client. And I think that that sent a shockwave through the community. I'm frankly surprised more companies didn't echo it, but nonetheless, it is a source of pressure. It got people talking and at least looking in the mirror. And I think the recent focus on race has brought a much needed focus to the lack of diversity from a race perspective, not only in boards, but in leadership ranks. So many companies, as you said earlier, published statements about being against racial inequity and then faced a well-deserved backlash because employees, customers, people, stakeholders pointed out that their leadership team and their boards didn't reflect the commitment in the statement that they published. Right. And so I'm hearing mandates being created to find African-American board candidates. Should this have already been a focus? Yes. Is it good that it's getting more focus? Absolutely. So, you know, I think one of the big obstacles to increasing the number of diverse board directors is the traditional requirements applied to the spec, the job description for a board director, which is that directors must have prior board experience or have been a CEO. Well, you know, that creates 
what I'll call a funnel issue. It leaves fewer people to choose from to begin with. And that becomes a conversation about, oh, well, we can't find the candidates. We had the intent, but guess what? Those, you know, board ready women candidates or, you know, uh, diverse candidates, African-American candidates, they just don't exist. So I think a major solution is to change the spec. And if you've held significant and responsible leadership experience and bring expertise, why is someone else having put you on a board before a requirement? So I got on my first board, Brookfield Property Partners, because Bruce Flatt, the CEO of Brookfield Asset Management, knew he did not need to rely on the traditional requirement of having prior board experience. He said to me, you've been a partner at Goldman Sachs. That's more than enough for me to know you have the experience and gravitas to serve on one of my boards. But right now, it's really hard to get on your first board, which affects diversity candidates disproportionately. So I say, let's change the spec. And also, getting back to trust, you know, let's make an effort to reach out and get to know diverse candidates as a best practice in advance of having a seat to fill so that we have the trusted relationships when we need them. You know, if we don't already have trusted relationships with these candidates, then that is a risk. So it always comes back to trust. There's a tremendous opportunity now while the spotlight is shining. Great. Lisa, I, I love that. I love the notion of basically changing the funnel, right? <laughs> Rather than creating an artificial barrier, an artificial choke point by saying, well, there's not enough African-American male CEOs or not enough women who've been, uh, who, who've got uh, public company CEO experience, change the spec, but change the network too. Yes. I like that a lot. Lisa, I want to thank you for sharing your thinking, your expertise, your experience in this discussion with us today. Well, thank, thank you so much for this opportunity. And uh, again, David, you know, I have so much respect for what you and your colleagues do and learn so much from it. So thank you. Likewise. And for more information on the topics we've discussed today or for further details on HRPS, please visit hrps.org.